0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Well, I remember growing up, so one of the things that hit me is I left the movie. You know, growing up in the United States, you're taught Uh, And I I remember this so well of, um, well, the U.S. needs to be the arbiter for all the countries that have nuclear power, because we're the ones that will use it justly. Right. Even most recently with Iran, as Iran has been trying to get nuclear power, we made it, you know, into the Obama administration, made a deal with them. And then the Trump administration took that back. But it was always like, well, yeah growing up you're thinking yeah we need to be the ones that decide that because you know we'll we'll use it justly and by using it justly we won't use it and as i'm sitting in there in the movie it really clicked for the first time of like wait there's only one country ever that has used this against an enemy and it's us and we did it twice so what makes us sort of the holy and righteous ones to make this decision on who gets to use it. And then it hit me again as I was watching that children of Nagasaki uh, film where the grandmother comes back to tell the children that their mother has died. And she said, well, I saw her and her skin had melted off of her. And then they're going to the cathedral, the grandmother and the son, the oldest son, and they're gathering up her bones to put her in a can to bury her. And it's like, how this isn't a weapon of righteousness. This is a weapon of evil and of terror, of destruction. And you know how how can it be anything but that? And we're the ones that unleashed it twice. My my one hope.
2: I you know, I think we all like this guy. You know what his great love is, is the to ride his horse in the New Mexico wilderness. Yeah, I've done that yeah but of course what that meant for me and i kept thinking there has to be something redemptive in the fact that this is the thing that he really loves you Mm -hmm. know they've got they keep they call it a ranch it has no electricity no toilet no running water it's just a a hut you know a little cabin with an outhouse
1: and they're even have beds a lot of the times oh is that right yeah yeah They talked about uh, uh, Frank, his brother talked about, you know, they would have friends there and it would, they just sleep on the floor. So it was rough. I mean, and I keep, I kept thinking, Oh, you know,
2: he, he loves the wilderness. He loves horseback riding. And then at some point he says, you know, I've always wanted to bring together two things, my love of New Mexico and my scientific research. Well, irony of ironies, this place that he loves becomes the site of the Trinity test. And, of course, it's right near Santa Fe, Santa Fe named after St. Francis. And the people of New Mexico are still suffering. This We never hear about this. The radioactive fallout, you know, they didn't know what, they, none of them were given warning. None of them were evacuated. And the fallout was they, they were literally being hit by the uh, the radioactive fallout. And these people are suffering for generations and have tried to you know what Oppenheimer ends up doing is in a sense destroying the place that he loves.
3: And that's right rem- remember he says almost prophetically, I have become death, the destroyer of all worlds. So even that world that he loved, and and by the way, that same beautiful nature is in Japan. What is it about this enigma of a man that he wants to combine the thing that he loves with destruction?
2: I just watched a documentary, you know, after the war the Americans are conducting all these tests and they send navy personnel out to experience why i don't know but among those that they sent out are british forces british soldiers you know these guys are all in their 80s and 90s now are describing that they were exposed on board ships to these nuclear tests and they were told to put their hands in front of their face you could literally it was like a, you were looking in an x-ray you could see all your bones And then these guys are, you know, they turn out they're sterile. One of them describes having a daughter who didn't, you know, she lived, she lived to be about 11, but suddenly she got a big hump on her back and they had to, she, she was, her body was just covered with hair. And or the deformities in Japan, you know, people are still dying of the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Every year they increase the toll. So, too, in New Mexico and beyond New Mexico. In other words, we don't know, actually. Nuclear fallout drifted over a large radius of the United States. You know, the, the destruction is literally untraceable.
3: You got to wonder about the cancer rates and everything. You know, who who knows what has happened. Uh, but even what we do know is just horrific.
1: Yeah. Can we say that this World War II is really the beginning of the military industrial complex that, you know, Eisenhower, who spoke out against the bomb and then, you know, as he's leaving office as president, speaks out against the military industrial complex and talks about that it's going to, you know, essentially destroy America. This idea, which, in my opinion, is also what ends up killing Kennedy, his trying to dismantle part of the military industrial complex. But can we say that that really starts with world war two and the buildup for world war two, that now it's to Matt's point, well, this is a part of the capitalistic machine now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
3: You know, that's the thing. When we say military industrial complex, what are we really saying with that? I think that what we're for sure saying is power and money right? So it's kind of like a complicated way to say uh, who has the power and who has the money, you know? Maybe it's just too cynical, you know, maybe there were, you know, and we can't ignore, you know, the moral force that's also at work with what's happening with Hitler and what he's doing to the Jews. And it's easy to sort of simplify, oversimplify this thing. But the fact is, is that you have a madman who is trying to take over the world, who is committing genocide, killing, you know, uh, handicapped people, anybody who's not uh, Aryan, homosexuals. It's so kind of almost insidious how there is like a good, right? The, the, anybody, can, you know, you always get that that sort of pushback when we, even when we talk about the gospel of peace and stuff like that, this is like a critical thing that people always bring up. They say, well, what about Hitler? You yeah. know? And I do, you know, and David Bentley Hart complicates it even more by saying that at what point does When you look at all the sort of the goods, right, truth, goodness, justice, all these different things, that at what point does it become unjust to not do something, you know, to stop, to stop this madman from murdering, butchering families and taking over the world and, uh, you know, annihilating people and things like this. So there's that. But what my point is, though, is that there's a really complicated sort of moral good at work there, too, right? That it's like, well, what else are we supposed to do? That's what the people would say. Now, that doesn't answer the problem about the atomic bombs. It's more about the question of just the war itself and, you know, the profiteers who who make billions and billions of dollars, you know.
1: Uh, Niels Bohr is having that co- conversation with Oppenheimer, who, you know, Niels Bohr doesn't want to be a part of it either. But he talks, Oppenheimer is telling him that, you know, it's essentially built. And, uh, I think the understanding that a lot of those guys had was the bomb will end future wars because Niels Bohr says something like, is it big enough to end all wars? But well, of course, what we know is it increased. Mm. You know, it maybe it ended at least from what we've seen. I think David French pointed this out, uh, as well that it ended major world wars on that sort of scale but the proxy wars right korea vietnam cambodia yeah all these increased significantly
3: And again you have to look at the politics of all that right what's going on there um are are those governments you know uh and sort of in league with the empire or are they trying to democratically elect socialists or what in other words like what's going on there politically right that once you start talking about the military industrial complex know you're also talking about the the, simultaneously what's happening there is sort of neoliberalism right and corporate power uh, you know so in other words like there's there's that economic force that's also happening right so the you know the corporations become treated like a person you know even even in the in the under the law right so you have the what we call the military industrial complex who are these group of people but they're really corporations And then that neoliberal power begins to sort of spread throughout the world, sort of an American sort of hegemony. Where if you're in league with the, you know, the right banks, and if you're in league with the right, you know, uh, buyers and suppliers and the right, in other words, sort of corporations, then you also have the military, you know, possibly backing, or, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you have uh, the opposite, right? If you don't play ball. But in other words, what I'm getting at is that there's a huge economic mammon, right? There's a God, there's a God of of war here. There's a God of man, there's, there's spiritual forces at work here. Um, that are sort of coalescing in conjunction with uh, war, terror, imperialism, neoliberalism, that basically just becomes like a centralized uh, corporate sort of power all over the world and the willingness to crush any type of dissent. I think that that really was a big part of what was happening there, even maybe with Oppenheimer. He might have said like, hey, I want to be a part of this thing. And if I continue with, you know, sort of dabbling in these left wing, you know, sort of sympathies or whatever, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I have a choice. He had a choice to make. Is he going to achieve his goals to sort of fuse nature with physics? Or is he going to be outcasted and ostracized and under held in suspicion by his colleagues prevented from being able to get a job and to do his work. They talk about these types of things, you know, he, he literally tries to get a a worker's movement going there uh, in the, in the classroom. Right. And the guy next door comes over and says, what are you doing? Stop. What are you going to do? Get these students together to, you know, form a union in, in this little place or whatever. And it's like, I think that, um, and, 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 and quite literally in Christopher Nolan's telling of the story, Oppenheimer has a decision to make. And remember that that's a critical scene where he tells the guy, I can't remember his name, but the guy who was doing the experiment next door where they actually split the atom or whatever they did, either keep doing this and you're out. In other words, either keep doing this organization of the workers and this left wing sort of leanings and you're just out or stop it right now and you can run the Manhattan Project. And we know what choice oppenheimer made but that's a that's a critical part i think of the storytelling there with christopher nolan is these political and economic world historical moments that are happening with the most brilliant mind perhaps that you know one of the most brilliant minds that there's ever been
1: i'm going to say something that christopher nolan probably wouldn't agree with but about his movie i think it's about sin like i know nolan says it's a horror movie but i think it's the destructive nature of sin because on multiple levels you have the destructive nature of what happens to gene his mistress that as he's not with her and he's with his wife kitty and then she ends up committing suicide you have the destructive nature of obviously the sin that leads to the destruction of of the world and you have an amazing line that I think has been overlooked in a lot of the reviews that I've seen where they, they're saying that Nolan's trying to lionize Oppenheimer. And I don't think that's what he's trying to do because Kitty, her last line is, because she's talking about why aren't you fighting back in this meeting? Why aren't you, you know, giving more and defending yourself? And she says, do you think if you let them tar and feather you that the world will forgive you? And again, I think that's part of the, torment that is going on in oppenheimer and then you have the amazing scene with um strauss where strauss is talking about how uh oppenheimer turned all of the scientists against him starting with einstein and he's recounting the conversation between oppenheimer and einstein and uh the the guy that's his younger sort of attorney there says what if they were talking about something much more important than you? Right. But again, you have that that sin, isn't it? Right. That that's that sinful part of us um, that wants to make everything about us. And Oppenheimer wanted to make everything about him. He wanted to be the most important person in the world. And then bureaucracy destroys all of that for him. But, yeah, I think Nolan's movie it can be viewed in that lens that it's about the destructive nature of sin. And then, of course, the mostly Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And there's that amazing scene where he's in the um, school auditorium where they're chanting his name. And, I, you know, we haven't mentioned that he doesn't actually show the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which some people are calling him out for that. But I think it actually works even more powerfully in that you don't see it and it's up to your imagination in a way because obviously you can look up the images and you can can see the images but the way you know the, the room is shaking as they're saying his name and then he is sort of losing it and then he sees the woman's face sort of coming off and he steps into the body that's been turned into ash and all of that again talking about the destructive power of sin. So I don't know that Nolan would agree with it that that's my
3: No, I think that yeah, I think that he, I don't think that he would disagree with that. Robert Oppenheimer would agree
2: with you. He mm-hmm. says, "We scientists have committed a sin." Mm. He himself comes to to recognize that. Now, I think your description of sin is probably a much more in-depth and profound understanding of sin than that which Oppenheimer had. In other words, I don't think he could trace himself. I don't think he had the capacity to see the forces that had brought him to this place, as you described it, Matt, in which evil is called good. The other thing Christopher Nolan points out, that scene and the woman, the young woman, that's his daughter. Mm-hmm that's Christopher wow. Nolan's daughter.
3: Wow. And think about that. that that's his daughter. Yeah, that's crazy. That, that's a crazy. Um it kind of reminds me of like Mel Gibson like being like the hand that's pounding the cro- the, the nail into Christ's hand or whatever. It's mm-hmm. like it puts you it, it like right. puts him kind of like in the uh as like the you know like the victim, his, da- his daughter is like the victim of this thing. It's like, it's a horrifying, yeah. horror. That's what I said. Like, when I walked out of the theater, I was like, I got to like tell Margaret I love her, you know? Yeah. Um,
2: uh, I saw him interviewed and he said, Well, why'd you do your daughter? But at first, he kind of you know, joked, said, Well, she's on summer vacation. I didn't have to pay her. <laughs> uh, Mm-hmm. Right. But what then, was his real answer well then yeah. he got into it and here's the most precious thing
3: mm. to, to me
2: you know I think it did have meaning for him
3: yeah. I mean, I th- I, we're talking about a. I think that Christopher Nolan is like an artistic genius right I mean yeah. you you would have I mean he remember he wrote the screenplay that's you know that's saying something right so in other words he, he came up with this he put it on paper and you know he figured out I'm gonna shoot it like this and I'm gonna you know, get, create these visuals. That's an amazing project. What Tom was saying, I mean, it would almost be too terrible to show, especially the way that Christopher Nolan, the cinematography and everything works. It's like, well, what are you going to do? Show the bomb being dropped on Japan and the horror. I mean, it's almost too terrible to even show. It's interesting too, how we're getting a lot of this sort of cinema that I think is precisely what Tom is saying. We, we saw it in Breaking Bad, right? Where you have a character there who is driven by good, you know, he said, I want to provide for my family. I have cancer. I'm going to die. You know, these forces sort of sweep him up, and in his quest for whatever it is that he's looking for, we find out that it's you know almost like nothing, you know, in the end. But there's so much destruction that's left in his wake. But we keep being told these stories, right? And then clearly, Breaking Bad, from a theological point of view, is the choices that people make and, and sort of sin. But that begs the question for me, and I don't know that I have an answer. Is there redemption in Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer?
2: I don't think so. And I think that's why the movie is so disturbing. As I've watched it and I've thought about it and I've dug into it, the movie is without redemption. Everything that should, that we would think would be redemptive, turns out to just be a reinforcement of
1: the powers of evil. But Tom, yeah. you, you may have a different... No, I completely agree. I mean, no, the last scene of the movie. So you have Kitty's line to him. And then you have the discussion of Strauss and what happens between Einstein and Oppenheimer. And the last scene of the movie is the water is falling down on Oppenheimer, which Nolan had used the the water. Like when they're talking about the hydrogen bomb and they're in that little meeting where they keep moving the plant back and forth and there's a map and that map is covered with water and like ripples and i think it's he's trying to show the ripple effect of all of this and so then the last scene is oppenheimer telling einstein you know essentially you know i i can't remember the exact quote but essentially he's saying i think we did destroy the world and that's it like that's, that's the end of the movie <laughs> that's the end of the movie credit <laughs> No, so well his
3: wife what is his wife um she actually like, she asks like this awesome question she poses like it's like she, she asked something about forgiveness talking,
1: yeah that's the one i was talking about okay like, she says did you think that if you let them tar and feather you that the world would forgive you hmm. and oppenheimer says well we'll see
3: apparently christopher nolan is leaving that as an open question and so here's where the rubber meets the road for us as christians the answer has to be yes we have to, that's the thing yeah. we have this, this unforgivable crime against humanity yeah. that Christ forgives him, that Christ loves Oppenheimer and died for Oppenheimer. And for all the people who were involved, Truman, all the bureaucrats, all the middle managers, all the mediocre, you know, sort of uh, maybe they're bloodthirsty, maybe they're Satanists, maybe they're whatever, all the children in Japan, Christ loves them, died for them forgives them from the cross you know this is what i was kept on saying to you guys when we were texting is that actually this was an attack upon christ himself you know if you if you take christian anthropology seriously that jesus talks about when i was sick you visited me it was me that you were visiting the same must be true for evil right and he makes that point in that you know in the judgment in matthew 25 where it's like well when you drop the atomic bomb it was me it was me that you dropped the bomb on, right? But nonetheless, I don't think that the world can forgive Oppenheimer for what he's done. But Christians have to. That's a tough one. Paul has has that look in his eye. He's got that crazy look in his eye.
2: As far as the forces that are brought about here, I don't think what we want to say as one of the doctors. There was one of the. There was a medical doctor. He was infected by the ruins. He was a Christian.
1: So the the movie Children of Nagasaki, it's about his family.
2: Okay, okay. Yeah. And he interprets the event. He interprets the dropping of the bomb as providential. He describes the suffering that is brought upon Japan as the payment for their sins. And there is a picture of God that then I think is very much a result of this history, that Kazo Kitamori writes a Japanese theology about the God in pain. And I think it's precisely the wrong message or wrong conclusion to draw that these events were providential and that out of them then the suffering of God is transferred in some way to the suffering of the Japanese people, and that in and through the suffering, they're achieving forgiveness. In other words, to too readily theologize in that fashion, I think we are passing over the depths of the evil. I think that why Christ came is in fact to undo the sort of scapegoating that you described that arises around this bomb, that is, the bomb is a necessity, we have to destroy first Nazi Germany. And and of course, you use the term we, Matt. And, And whenever I hear that word, it's kind of like a buzzword to me. I think immediately, what we are you thinking of? We Christians, we're not thinking of ourselves in terms of in cahoots with the forces that brought about this bombing, but that there should always be a countervoice, even if we can't completely apprehend or understand that when in the midst of the hysteria and scapegoating, that what Christianity should provide us is a platform to resist these forces and to not too readily give them over or explain them. But to say no, it's precisely that for these reasons that Christ came, that there would be those who would resist the the demonization and evil.
3: I wasn't going that way. I mean, you've told the story of the preacher in Japan who got up and I think gave that same homily, right? That I think that he moms... must have been.
2: Yeah, I must. He must have been reading this doctor.
3: Yeah, who yeah. was
2: a very sophisticated Christian thinker, yeah. who I'm afraid
3: thought that god did this to them right so right so i think that we can probably make the same exact mistake that we were talking about earlier by calling good evil and evil good uh, by mistaking god for satan we can get a different completely different vision of who god is that has nothing to do with the incarnate christ but the fact remains is, is that the Christian leaders in the United States, these people, I'm assuming wasn't Truman a very a vocal sort of Christian. Truman was a Baptist.
2: He says, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a Baptist because I think that sect gives the common man the shortest and most direct approach to God.
1: It's interesting that uh, so Truman is a Baptist, and then Eisenhower, who've already talked about, you know, was against the the bomb. And is against the, not that Eisenhower wasn't perfect either, but was against sort of the military industrial complex mm-hmm. grew up Mennonite. Mm. Wow. But he went against the church. Church went against him when he went into the military. But you have to wonder if that, and then he became Presbyterian, but you have to wonder if that teaching allows him to have a little bit of a different view that, you know, we could, we could say that seed that was in him to have a different view than the. You know, Truman's on that. Um, I don't know. Just I mean, my
3: my point my point wasn't you know, hey, we have to you know willy nilly forgive. What I'm saying is, is that Christopher Nolan at the end of the movie poses an open question and says, you know, will the will the world forgive you? And you know, you think that because you know they crucify, right? In other words, like there's a almost a Christological sort of comparison there or whatever, right? Like you think that just because they you know were willing to be crucified and tarred and feathered, the you know, the world will forgive you. You know, it's like, well, let's see if they do. Uh, who am I to say that you know, I'm not Japanese? My grandson's uh skin wasn't burned off or, or whatever, right? So by the atomic bomb. But what I am saying though. Is the harder thing, and that is is if these people are claiming to be Christians, which they are, this is a satanic demonic force that's been unleashed that could literally destroy the entire world as we know it. And you know, the the image of God, you know, to be completely obliterated or whatever off the face of the earth. That's not Christianity, which goes without saying, right? But you know, but as Christians, what to me though is phenomenal and which is un- unbelievable though, is that I think that Christ in my understanding, has forgiven sin. And he has forgiven uh, and died for the Oppenheimers of the world, the Trumans, the Hitlers of the world, the everybody's of the world.
2: It's not that I'm disagreeing with you. It's just that my forgiveness or lack of forgiveness has nothing to do with
3: these events. It's okay. not, that's not necessarily true, because you could be swept up into the same force. Let's say if you don't forgive, and you're just like those, I, I those, got, those no, bastards.
2: And- in other words, forgiveness doesn't seem to be the main issue here. Well, I mean, it's how Christopher Nolan ends the film. Rather, I think that the exposure of the evil, we don't just forgive the evil and forget about it, right? Say, oh, well, I forgive him, that's enough. In other words, I, I'm quite happy to. yeah, forgiveness is a, is a thing that we need to grant to people and recognize that each of these human beings were cogs in a machine that they seem to have very little control over. And I think it it may be not so important that I say, oh, I forgive you, Robert Oppenheimer, but rather that we are able to put our finger upon, the, as you were describing it, the demonic forces that are at work in a kind of sweeping, enigmatic, unrecognizable form that shows itself in the destruction
1: unleashed by the atomic weapons that's what he allows us to sit in at the end of the movie as he oppenheimer's last line in the last line of the movie about well we have i'm afraid we have destroyed the world maybe nolan's point and if not his point maybe it should be is what are we going to do when we're faced with that kind of choice of whether right. to commit that kind of evil or not
3: right. That just yeah. goes back to my earlier question about redemption it's like is there any redemption in the movie or is it just pure nihilism does Christopher Nolan just leave us with a pure sort of nihilism of like well the world's been destroyed it's it's you know it's gonna happen Oppenheimer really has become the destroyer of all worlds or as Christians do we believe that that's not true because Jesus Christ is Lord
2: uh, this may sound funny I think there's something almost redemptive in being able to name the nihilism
3: yeah Yeah. to
2: to be able to say, oh this is dark this Mm -hmm. is and and to be able to name that thing and if there's redemption that's where it is
3: yeah no that's good Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's an important point right because that goes back to our whole conversation about being able to identify to say wait a second let's take a step back here this is evil We're talking about murder. You know, we're talking about in a flash, annihilating hundreds of thousands of people or whatever. Someone's got to have, you know, it's like Dr. King said, you know, he was driving on the highway with his brother one day and it was at night and it was real dark. And all these, like, you know, these cars are coming at him with their brights on. The guy that's driving is like, these these people are ridiculous, you know, and I'm going to put my brights on and I'm going to keep my brights on and I'm going to show them or whatever. And Dr. King says, oh no. He said, somebody on this highway has to have the sense to turn off their bright. It's it seems like a funny thing, but it's like that that is the point, right? Is that someone has to have the sense to say, wait a minute, maybe these structures that we have created that are just all about the acquisition of wealth and that are grounded in greed and grounded in power and exploitation and murder and terror. Maybe these things are evil. And by the way, what we mean by forgiveness is repentance, you know, that the two are in- in- inextricably linked. Maybe we need to rethink. I mean, isn't that what Christopher Nolan is saying? It's like, guys, we really could become the destroyer of all worlds. And that, like Dostoevsky said, that we're all responsible for one another. It's like, I am Oppenheimer, you know, and so are you. We all can be caught up into this thing. So we have to be able to even as brilliant as Oppenheimer is or was to take a step back, you know, I think in the light of the gospel and to be able to name these evils and to say, I repent, I'm not going to participate in this. I I don't care if I don't get a job. I don't care if if I don't become the most powerful, coolest, most famous person in the world or, or whatever, like this is wrong and to not repeat the mistakes and that's what i mean by forgiveness because if we continue down this road clearly christopher nolan is saying that the world is going to be destroyed and so like tom's saying we really are left with the choice and so that choice is is like okay we can bastardize oppenheimer and and you know sort of scapegoat him and we can do the whole thing to him that you know we we always do as human beings or we can make as christians our rule of life Forgiveness and love and mercy and peace and you know love of neighbor.
1: Less than twenty after World War II during the Cuban Missile Crisis, if it hadn't been been for Kennedy and Khrushchev deciding, no, we somebody's gotta have some sense. Kennedy, all of Kennedy's advisors except for Bobby was saying was telling him to launch. And Kennedy kicked out all of his military advisors and it was just he and Bobby and they decided, no, we need to reach out to Khrushchev. So they kind of back channeled to Khrushchev and said, you realize if we do this, we end the world. And so it was Kennedy and Khrushchev deciding, well, neither one of us want to be that person that ends the world. And so they ended up talking and, um, did they pray and,
3: or something? I thought you told yes, me.
1: I believe that's the case that Jack and Bobby prayed in that moment for wisdom, you know, reached out to Khrushchev and Khrushchev didn't want to destroy the world either. It, it's beyond the destructive force of these weapons. It's the entrusting us to manage them. Russia and Ukraine that, you know, it, we, it could happen at any point that this happens. And so I think it's, it's very timely um uh, that this movie came out
3: um, clearly the message is is that we need we have to abolish these weapons you know i don't know how you do that i don't
1: know if it'll happen like yeah. hey uh, it's one of those like the, the genie is out of the bottle i don't know right that anyone's gonna put it back in because you know they even if you destroyed all of them they can still make
3: more Right. Perhaps Kennedy, uh, the Kennedys were sane, you, you know, and Khrushchev had some, so they had some, you know, modicum of sanity, but what happens if someone who's just totally insane, you know, has yeah. access to these weapons or whatever, and it's all out uh, full scale w- nuclear winter and, and all the things that come with it. So, yeah, yeah these, the, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a real possibility. There's the, you know, the story of the the Russians, the guy on the submarine, who there was a false everything all signs were pointing to the United yeah. States had launched. You know,
1: wasn't that Russian song, Sean Connery? <laughs> yes,
3: that's right. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah. The talk about Paul the the book you just held up, the Doomsday. Um, it's it, it's called the Doomsday Machine uh, oh. by Daniel Ellsberg. In fact,
2: Ellsberg, you know, he died just recently, and before <laughs> he died, he said, "We're at the most serious point." in terms of the use of nuclear weapons that we've ever been and he's a guy uh no he he died a few weeks ago but putin today one of his generals said well putin has said well we're going to have to use nuclear weapons in ukraine but the new doomsday machine this is the papers that ellsberg you know he he took out the pentagon papers and immediately well not immediately but he published them eventually in the washington post uh the new york times about 19 different papers eventually picked up the story and that's really what stole or took out of his office because he was a nuclear war planner himself he knew what the plans were and when he first saw the plans you know they they handed him a piece of paper with the estimates in which they were going to present this to the president and And he got this in his hands. He said, this piece of paper, this thing should not exist. And of course, what it was, was the casualties that would occur from an all-out nuclear war between China, the Soviet Union, and the United States. And actually, it was uh, during the period when they were having difficulty over Taiwan. And the estimates, you know, were in the hundreds of thousands for each country. The, the strange thing was that these were acceptable numbers. In other words, yeah. they, they put this into place. They didn't mind killing hundreds of thousands. What he says he did not know, and which no one knew at this point, was that it really did mean nuclear winter, that they didn't understand the science yet, that it would have resulted in the destruction of life on Earth. That is that once this war takes place, these are the nuclear plans of mutually assured destruction—the doomsday machine. Mm-hmm. Those
3: plans are still in place. He said on Democracy Now, there's an interview on him that's really good, or with him that was really good, and he said he knew whenever he held that those plans in his hands that this was the most evil plan ever devised—the
1: mutually assured destruction plan.
3: Yeah, the willingness. And he said that the numbers weren't even close. He said that the actually nobody even knew. He he said that they didn't even really know the real uh, sort of numbers on the ground of like the people that would be killed. Uh, They had no idea. Um, But Paul's point is, is that these plans are still in place.
2: Yeah. So
3: the price of winning
2: this war is we destroy everybody. That's the mutually assured destruction. In other words,
3: this is true madness. It's total insanity. What is there to be lost? right Mm -hmm. it's like you you don't want you know it's the power of the world it's the money of the it's mammon it's the world Mm -hmm. that will be lost that that's what's at stake for the powers and it's almost worth it's like well it would be better to just destroy the world than to lose our place in the world our power our money yeah it would just be better for everyone to be annihilated because we're the good guys so if, if something happens to the good, you know, it's better that the world be just annihilated than for the good guys to lose because then the bad guys take over, and you know communism reigns or or whatever, right? So in other words, there's a logic at play that's or, a moral, vice versa. or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a moral sort of uh, you know law that's at work. Well, it's it's chilling to
1: even think about. Uh, there's the, it's a funny scene in the movie, but if you think about it, it's not funny when uh they're at trinity getting ready to launch and oppenheimer is talking about the so they're taking wagers on whether the atmosphere actually ignites and goes away and the general finds out about this and he says well what are you what are you even talking about and oppenheimer said well in some of our calculations there was a thought that we could destroy the atmosphere and end all life but he said you know it's close to zero that that won't happen and the general you know says something and oppenheimer says well what what do you want from me And he goes well zero would be nice which is a funny scene that they use in the trailer and all that but okay that time those two times it didn't what about the next time yeah the next one that's even bigger than the atom bomb could one ignite
3: the entire atmosphere and end the world? We know that because of the mutually assured destruction that one is going to result yeah, in two, right. which is going to result in four, you know, so it's just okay. it really is mutually assured destruction. So it's it's a perilous situation. You know, the only God I, I truly believe I'm to the point now. I think I used to. um almost sort of despair about this you know i used to just i you know i was reading a lot of chomsky at the time you know and <laughs> chomsky is just, and i love gnome you know but he's basically saying that nuclear the nuclear problem and the climate problem are just by far the the two biggest And he, but the problem with the nuclear problem is that in an instant you know we could what happened in japan could happen here to our kids yeah. to our wives to our you know um And I almost sort of resigned myself that like, you know, this is going to, this is going to happen. But I kind of had a moment and I I, I don't know if it was the spirit or my guardian angel or what, but it was almost like, have you forgotten that our Lord Jesus Christ reigns over the world and that he has myriads of angels at his disposal and that man's plans can never You know, it's not to say the terrible things can, you know, obviously horror, you know, the worst evils, Christ being crucified, etc., can happen and have happened and will happen. But it was almost like a moment of hope for me to think about what if we, through our prayers, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe, you know, maybe we should be like interceding for the world and asking God, you know, to prevent this terrible disaster. And he can, and he, you know has obviously has the power to do so. And so as the priests of the earth, you know, we should probably be interceding to God and asking him to, to please, you know, prevent this from happening so that our children can flourish. And, um, you know, so we don't starve to death at best or, or whatever, because this is still God's world, you know, but you can get wrapped up in the same way that we can be wrapped up in all these other forces. We can be wrapped up in despair and nihilism and faithlessness and all these different things, you know, but The spirit says, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ reigns and rules and we all live and move and have our being in him. And so that's our hope as Christians. So I don't know. I guess if I saw this movie Oppenheimer and I didn't have the faith that I have, I guess I would just walk out of the theater like, good God, we're, you know, we're, it's inevitable.
1: Yeah. I mean, Paul and I were already a little worried about you after watching the movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
3: Yeah
1: wait till the despair had lifted a little
3: (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. your prayers your prayers must have been answered you know because i do think i was just like you know it just seems like such a inevitability you know that some mistake or some false flat or some madman or just there's all the different contingencies you know um that it's just going to happen and my my sweet wife you know my beautiful uh nieces and nephews and my animals and all this beautiful world you know can just be just annihilated in a few you know minutes or whatever but i guess it gives me a, a hope to re- to remember that christ it reigns over his world yeah you know i don't know what else and, to ho- i don't know where else to hope in i, I really don't yeah.
1: and and the, of course the hope of uh a resurrection and a new heavens and a new earth that won't include nuclear weapons That's or right. like any kind where sort atomic bombs will be turned into
3: plowshares
2: somebody should use that in name of an organization <laughs> that's right,
3: right. Yes. And, and then and then a bunch of people should give a lot of money to it to support yeah. it so we can continue having these conversations that's and putting right. out all this content that's, that's right. right you know you know, yes. you can go to forging org yes. uh, and, and donate now uh, <laughs> and save the world and save the world from nuclear <laughs> holocaust um yeah it's no i mean we're 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 serious about this stuff that we we love movies and we love you know this we love our families man we love our lives we love the you know the good things of the world and uh we know that the you know that the satan is a destroyer and a murderer and he is the destroyer of all worlds and so when we were going back and forth in text and stuff and i'm like this is satanic it's easy to kind of brush that off and say oh that's some sort of hokey you know religious talk or, or whatever and it's like Or, you know, there's forces that would do things like commit genocide and put Jewish, precious Jewish souls into ovens and kill them and drop bombs on, you know, Japanese children and grandmas and grandpas and uh, do all the horror, you know, crucify Christ and all these different things. It's like that we're capable of, man, this is my only recourse like this is after looking at a different theology and the philosophy and working as a hospice chaplain and you guys were and i'm you know i'm staring death in the face every single day and i know that it's uh it's inevitable you know so even if there is no nuclear holocaust it's like we're all headed for the grave when you walk out of that the the only when i walked out of that theater and I was looking at all the people who were eating their, you know, their lunch and laughing and joking and smiling and everything. And I had that moment of despair of like, man! In a flash, all these people's could, skin could be melted off, and they're just skeletons. You know, I always think of that that scene on Terminator Two. You know, whenever Sarah Connor has that horrifying vision yeah. of like the kids playing in the playground and all of a sudden the nuke goes off and you know she's yeah. at the fence holding on to it and she just turns into like a scale all her flesh comes off and she's like a skeleton or whatever and then she just explodes or however it is it's like this horrifying scene and I kind of had that moment of like good God, Lord that's like where we're headed and and by the way we might be we could very well be headed there yeah. um if
1: we don't literally happen to the people of Japan
3: yeah that ha- yeah that's right that that actually happened but in that yeah. moment of coming out of the theater I kind of did have that moment of nihilistic kind of despair but then i remembered that i'm a christian <laughs> yeah. you know and that doesn't help that you know in that moment of the bomb going off or whatever it's like good you know what happens to your religion in that moment or whatever you know of of, of chaos and fear and you know terror and all those different things but my point is it was my only recourse was to have that hope and to say jesus is lord
1: there's there, there's a beautiful moment in that children of nagasaki movie where the grandmother is comforting her grandson who knows that his, what you described as Sarah Connor is what happened to his mother. Mm. As he's weeping and all of that, he, she keeps reminding him, your mother's with Christ mm. that she's safe in his arms and she's not on fire. And that one day you'll see her again. And it's such a, it, it's brought tears in my eyes then is almost doing that to me now. But that you know that's that's
3: that is our hope. That's all I got. Yeah.
2: All I got.
3: What do you got, Paul?
2: That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Yeah.
3: You know, if,
1: if we want to switch it to a little more fun for for a second. It's gotta win best picture.
3: Unless some sort of woke nonsense ruins it. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um yeah, it's good. <laughs> it's good happen. Yeah. I would be shocked if Killian Murphy doesn't win Best Actor and Robert Downey Jr. doesn't win Best Supporting Actor and the Best uh,
3: Cinematography, Best Screenplay. I mean, you know, yeah, and for a Nolan Best movie, Director, which Nolan
1: is uh doesn't always care about dialogue. I mean, like Dunkirk is almost a silent film. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. It's a dialogue heavy movie mm-hmm. for Nolan, um but it, like Paul said, it it runs very. It's a. it's felt like a ninety minute three hour movie, but Fair warning for Christians out there, If uh, we can cut this if you want, but if you struggle with lust, there are a significant amount of nude scenes, long-lasting nude scenes in the movie. So if if that is an issue for you, you might need to avoid it. Um, And Christopher Dolan says, I think this
2: is the first movie he's had sex scenes in. Okay. And he didn't do them very well. (laughs) Because <laughs> his sex scenes aren't actually sex scenes; they're two people sitting in a chair, nude, looking at each other. Uh, yeah. So it it and then seems. And
1: the which is. <laughs> Let's. Uh, I was listening to one <laughs> top podcast about the movie, and uh, they were talking about her being a uh, training to be a psychiatrist, and it was a male and a female on the podcast talking about that, and the female brought it up. And the male goes, I don't remember her talking about that at all. And she goes, Well, <laughs> that might be because she was naked in the scene. Yeah. I
3: go, oh. <laughs> I, remember, I remember a word that she said. <laughs> yeah. But the, is- the beauty of the human body was on full display. I was too, you know, it, was, it spoke louder than any words. Yeah. yeah. These people
2: were all reading Freud. Yeah. Yeah. So, not that it helped
1: them any, but no. <laughs> well and she was a Jungian, i believe
2: yeah she was too but she wanted to be a freudian psychoanalyst yeah she was studying Jung. and
3: the women are like totally exploited right by by i don't don't want to be unfair but uh, they're sort of like either like a play thing or like the one woman remember she's like going to be on the staff and mm-hmm. she comes in, you know, she's the only woman, you know, the, the, there's all these. She turns out she's this brilliant, you know, yeah. uh, woman. And he does, I think, though, he lets her, I don't remember. He, he like, he sort of lets her in whenever everybody's like yeah. trying to keep her out. But it's like, yeah, like, what's the role of women? And, you know, were, were the women, uh, if women were in charge, would the nuclear bomb have been dropped?
1: Well, and Oppenheimer, from the book, it's very clear he was a misogynist.
3: No, really? Yeah.
1: yeah uh even like uh his brother's wife he didn't like her she mm. was uh um she had been a waitress i think she's the one that was really interested in the communist party he wouldn't refer to her by her name after his brother married her it would be that waitress that my my brother married right the way he referred to her
2: he clearly had something psychological going first of all his brother was the probably his best friend there yeah, was probably yeah. nobody that he was closer to. Right. The other thing, when he did form male friendships and they got married, he literally, when they told him it happened, I think twice, didn't it, Tom? Yeah. That yeah. he literally attacked them, and one guy he tried Visit- to choke. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He literally physically attacked them. Wow. So he he didn't take breakup with his boyfriend, male friends, right? Yeah. Uh, very well at all.
3: (laughs) I had no idea. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm
2: sure he resented the woman taking his brother because his brother was kind of his project, you know. Yeah. And the the description of Frank uh, is Frank is Oppie or Robert Mm. without the edge.
3: Mm. Yeah, because everybody Uh, liked
1: Frank.
2: Everybody liked Frank, but a lot of people didn't like Robert.
1: Yeah. Mm. Kenny does have one of the best scenes of the movie, though, in the court where she's oh, yeah. of, uh, going after the guy that's going interrogating, yeah, 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 and you know corrects his English, and, yeah,
3: yeah. That's a powerful that she you know? that's like a woman. you know that's like a I am woman, hear me roar sort of moment. Yeah.
1: And when she refuses to when they're because uh, it was actually Kennedy is the one who. Gave Oppenheimer his credentials back. Really? So Kennedy gave it back to him and was going to honor him with the medal. Kennedy
2: uh, wanted him to go through another trial. Oh, was
1: that what? Okay. And Oppenheimer, I don't think he wanted to go through another trial. Okay. To exonerate
2: him? To exonerate or,
1: him. Okay. Wow. But uh, Kennedy's the one that was going to honor him there at the end with the, the right. medal, because he hated what strauss had done to oppenheimer
3: he was the senator remember he was the dissenting he yes. said well, who were who yes. the dissenting votes and was but it robert that, or john i think it was john it was Kennedy. john yeah.
1: yeah the medal ceremony that you see at the end where she refuses to shake teller's hand you know he shakes hands with robert and she won't shake his hand that medal ceremony happened in december of 63. So it happened right after Kennedy was assassinated.
3: Um, wow! And of yeah. course, you know Kennedy was always accused of having sort of secret left, um, yeah, leanings, right? I mean, yeah, that's part of the story. I think is the is the battle between fascism and and sort of socialism and things like that. It's at the heart of the conversation.
2: I yeah. seen. I don't think it was in the movie, and I people said it was in the movie. This whole trial thing. He need, didn't need to do that. Yeah. He could have just chosen. And of course, the, the I, either it was not there or I didn't catch it. That when he says that he's going to defend himself and Einstein says, you don't need to do this. You know, the, and he says, well, damn it, I love this country. And then Einstein says in Yiddish, there goes a
1: fool so everything except for the last part is in the movie okay all right so they have the conversation cuz einstein says well you know when my turn country turned against me i left it and oppenheimer says you know w- you know i love this country and yeah from but you're right einstein in actuality said that he's a fool
2: and and in a way it's kind of incomprehensible why he subjects himself to this. You know, he wants to exonerate himself, but what Einstein saw and, and Kitty saw was this is a kangaroo court. Yeah. There, there's no way he was going to win. The thing was stacked against him.
3: That was one, that were that was like a question that I had, like as in the audience. I was thinking like, it wasn't clear to me why. I'm like, why is he doing this? Is it ego or like, what is it where he's like trying to, like they said, like Tar and Feather himself, or whatever. He's just sitting there, sort of demure. You know, he's he's not he's not being aggressive or whatever. He's not really defending. I don't know. I guess I don't know as an audience member even now. Like, what was the point?
2: Was it Kitty that threw the vase at him? Yeah. Yes. I said, she said, "You're a total idiot." Right. Yeah. To do this. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But I'm I'm still at like why? Look like, what? No, I'm saying not that Christopher Nolan failed. I'm saying what was oppenheimer doing oh yeah there do we know
2: like yeah. he just wanted he thought he could exonerate himself
3: yeah and even matt damon said uh, you know based upon the information i have now i wouldn't classify i wouldn't give him clearance but then all these no, people
1: I, I love that part at the end where he says but i wouldn't have cleared any of them right uh, yeah you
3: know, <laughs> um, but yeah. Str-
2: strauss uh, of course is the evil guy yeah and, and I kind of, you know, Oppenheimer can't see that. Right. I don't think he understands. He he still thinks this guy's his friend. Yeah. And I guess that I share a bit of that naivete. The, the,
1: there's the devil, but he didn't recognize it. Yeah. I love the his real friend, um, the scene where he gives him the orange to eat. Beautiful scene of friendship where he's give, making sure he eats. Yeah, and yeah. then sees Lawrence walking down to testify and sort of looks up and, and, you know, is like, I can't believe you're doing this to him. And then walks away and Oppenheimer says, well, who was that? And he says, well, don't worry about it. It's not important. I, I thought in that moment, that's an example of Christ of his friend hurting and he's there feeding him and um helping him you know um which again i think robbie is the
3: moral center of the movie Um, that's good yeah yeah look i'm i'm with you and i get it what about this though let me try to spin it a different way you have a male and a female you know there's a it's a beautiful woman She's gorgeous, you know, you have Kilia Murphy, he's a you know you, you, it's almost like Adam and Eve or whatever. you have the you, know, you have the male and the female and all of their beauty. And you know the, this is what's at stake. This is what's at stake. that those same two beautiful bodies are in Japan. They're all over the world. Uh, that Christ himself, you know, took on a body, the human body that God made so good. And so beautiful and so profoundly magnificent, you know, uh, because of the, you know, the tyranny of evil men, as Tarantino, you know, put it, can just, and, you know, the image of God. You know, male and female, he created them. They were naked. They weren't ashamed. They, they were, you know, now there's all sorts of, you know, this is adultery or whatever, you know, so it's like maybe different or whatever. But nonetheless, you have these two, you know, beautiful sort of human beings and all of their sort of frailty and they're naked and you know, the girl's crying and they're talking about life and death. And the whole movie sort of feels like life and death is at stake.
1: From my pastoral heart. Yes. Uh, I just thought it would be important to note yes, that yes. if you're planning on seeing it. Yeah really fighting with that, uh, you may need to avoid it. Um, but yes, your point is is very well taken. That's uh, exactly what's at stake is humans.
2: Yeah, they, and, and of course, the, the sad part of of the thing, another the other failing of Robert Oppenheimer that sort of comes out is I think he was a terrible father. Kitty, of course, was an alcoholic. And Peter is going to suffer all of his life from, you know, he psychologically, I think, you know, what what do you do if this is your father? Mm. And it's almost like he picked up, he he lives in that ranch, which is not really a ranch. He is a carpenter. He is a pacifist. I think he got the point. He got the best part of his father or at least learned a lesson yeah Uh, from the events that his life was surrounded by
3: another way to look at it too is uh you know the movie may has a lot to say about love right or or lack thereof but you know oppenheimer's clear sort of just almost childish wonder and love of physics and of the universe and of nature as paul was talking about um but then even the women who love oppenheimer you know he's willing to leave his mistress you know she says She clearly, she wants to, he keeps on bringing her flowers, you know, and she, she throws them in the garbage, you know, so it's like, what's the, what's the symbolism there? Every time he brings her flowers, she throws them in the garbage, says, don't bring me flowers, you know, but again, Oppenheimer has a choice to make. And he just tells her, he says, this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. That's the nude scene, by the way. Um, that he says, this is, uh, this is the last time I'm ever going to see you. You know, this woman loved him. And then his actual wife loved him, you know, and he's cheating on her. So it's like, it, it's a complex sort of, uh, commentary on what is it that Oppenheimer loved, you know, because if it's also sort of a story of disordered love, right. Because he also has this love of fame and of power and of, um, ego and, of You know, he wants to have power over nature itself. You know, he wants to sort of solve the and, and harness the energy, you know, the power of the universe. And for for destruction, he really does become the destroyer of all worlds in that regard. Right. Because he harnesses this this great power. Um, so it's like, what is it that, that Robert Oppenheimer loved? You know, did he love the women in his life? Did he love his children? Did he love nothingness? destruction did he love i mean he was going to kill his tutor it's just such a great character study maybe maybe one of the great i mean one of the greatest character studies ever on cinema Yeah. yeah have they ever done anything paul on like the like the german genius or whatever it's like how could they give us bach and hegel and luther and you know oppenheimer and einstein it's like what is going on? There? Have these studies been done or whatever? Or are we just neglecting all the brilliant Japanese and Africans? Or is it like a racial thing going on there or what? But, it, but it's like, clearly, like, the German people have given us some of the most unbelievable genius. I history- beer and cheese. Must be it. A- yeah, that's right. <laughs> <beer and> cheese. <laughs> As a boy,
2: I asked my father, I don't know how old I was, I was probably 15, 14. I said, well, who are who are the smartest people in the world? He said. He didn't hesitate. He said the
3: Germans. I mean, they made the they gave us the BMW for goodness sakes. <laughs> it's pretty crazy.
2: And of course, the thing we didn't touch on, and it maybe I don't know how you touch upon it.
3: There's something we didn't touch upon.
1: <laughs> That'll be in the fifth hour. Yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. boy,
2: the predominant players are Jews.
1: Or hmm, you know, yeah. not
2: that they all were in in Almogardo and the main physicists, you know, a, a major portion of them are Jewish. Yeah, run that down for me.
1: I don't know, yeah,
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, because Be I mean, that's why, that's why <laughs> it said that you know it was because of Hitler's anti Semitism, um, otherwise, he would have had. You know yeah. i think he even talks to the general and says because mm-hmm. you know, the oh the general says um he has a 12-month head start on us and oppenheimer says 18 months and he said well what help do we have and he said hitler's an anti-semite you know he he won't listen to the greatest minds yeah um, to to come up with this and that's a
3: that's a, that's a good insight right there you know yeah. that's that's profound in other words hitler's hatred in the end, is what cost him everything. Yeah, I mean, literally, right? I mean, he his racism and hatred is what cost him his life, and and maybe the the war.
1: Yeah, because he thought uh, quantum theory was uh, Jewish science. Jewish science.
3: Mm. Maybe
2: right. that's the answer uh, that in this understanding of physics, we've passed beyond a Newtonian mechanical. Understanding into something that escapes that, it's more complicated than that. That is, I think, maybe a reflection of a Hebraic conception of the personhood of the creator that gets Ooh. reflected. In other words, it, it is reflective not of a great machine but of a person. Yeah,
3: I got
1: in With his theological kung fu and just,
3: yeah. Yeah. You know, it could be that the Christians who were in charge during World War, you know, World War II, clearly they didn't have the theological mind. They didn't have, and what we mean by that, I guess, is just like the, I don't know, is it like the love of God, uh, right? Like that's theology, right? The love of Christ or Christian theology, you know, those guys who were in charge were a product of uh, a perverse, failed theology, you know, and that we're, we're I think that Paul is trying to offer, you know, with with everybody's participation, you know, an, an alternative ancient form, I think, of the faith that needs to, if our world has any hope, you know, the church, we, we have to pray for that the church will actually become, you know, the the prophetic voice that it's been called to be. Uh, instead of participating in these systems of exploitation and violence and death and destruction and things like that, we have to be. I mean, we are just at a time in history, and a time in the church where, I, in my opinion, you know, for Christians, the only option is to be uh, advocates of nonviolence, advocates of peace, peacemakers, you know, lovers of a neighbor, people who are healers, people who are you know, bringing up alternative solutions to difficult problems. And I'm not saying that those people should be in power, you know, because it could be that they get swept up in the same way that we all do, but we should at least be able to name the evil, like Paul was saying and say, this isn't what the, this isn't what our Lord Jesus Christ would have, would, would have us do. This isn't what he would do. This is not what he would call his followers, his disciples to do. Um, and he would actually be telling them to uh, resist even to the point of shedding blood or taking up your cross, like the ancient Christians did you know, to just refuse to participate in as much as it's in one's power to, you know, to uh, or ability to, uh, you know, participate in these systems. It's it's hard to do as an American, you know, you wake up and you, you just get swept right up into the exploitation of whoever made your coffee or whoever made your soap or whoever made your, you know what I mean? It's, it's difficult to, to navigate, but um, we have to, we have to figure it out. Yeah. That's I'm it. so
1: grateful for you and the, I mean, in the day of, you know, where we have even the rise of white Christian nationalism, that's unashamed now with Stephen Wolf and some of these people who are, do you know, Stephen Wolf, have you heard of him? So he's uh, works for Al Mohler in the Southern Baptist Convention, and he wrote a book on defense of Christian nationalism. And it's specifically white christian nationalism and he's advocating for the separation of the races where it's just unabashedly racist and he's getting more and more people to his cause even on twitter uh the other day he tweeted something out about uh who's emmett till and why should i even care about him so it's
3: satanism it's satanism wrapped in christian garb Yeah, And this is what I think that we've been talking about a lot, you know, in this podcast, you know, we're, I don't want to condemn, I don't want to become the Satan, you know, myself and to start accusing people. And then we're talking about forces here that are, you know, extraordinarily powerful that we all again, get caught up in from time to time. We all fall, we all sin, we all, you know, fall short of the glory of God, you know, but that's what I'm saying is that I'm afraid that what happened with the dropping of the atomic bombs That was done in the name of righteousness that were done by christians i'm not saying that these people were like demon possessed or something like that but what i'm saying is is that there is sort of this satanic power of death and of scapegoating and of destruction and of terror and horror that's unleashed through these people who are saying that they're christians and that is the antichrist by definition it's an antichrist attack again on christ himself So we have to say that as Christians. We have to say that's a hard thing to say to our brothers and sisters that we love, to say, you know, I'm afraid that you have fallen for a a lie. I'm afraid that you've been taken captive by a a falsehood, a lie, you know, and and that that lie is going to result in death and destruction and horrifying consequences. You have to resist it at all costs. And like Paul said, we have to be able to name it to be able to even... (laughs) You know, but then you get to read the people who push back, and it's like, what you're talking about a racist Christianity or whatever. It's like this yeah. is this is um, this is this is Satan appearing as an angel of light. I don't know what else to call it except for this sort of satanic. I don't want to say satanic Christianity. I don't want to be blasphemous, but I'm. What I, you know what I'm saying? It's like it, it, there's something terrible that's happening, and, and perverse. It's, yeah. it's perverse, and it's clothed in. The Bible and it's clothed in, in the sort of the guise of righteousness, and but it's it's a god, it's like a it's a religion of death. It's a cult of death and destruction and nationalism and and and, and materialism and capitalism and power, corporate power and you know, whatever else. You know, let me let me give the the other
2: side of that. Okay, good. And that is that you know one of the things in the movie that is kind of beautiful. I mean this this I like this guy and I like these people just engaging and interesting, and they have a community because they're all in pursuit of the truth. I think that as Christians, we in this little group, but in our larger group, you know, we have a a pursuit of truth and and a conversation that is inherently interesting and a truth that is so much more profound and draws us together in such a closer bond. You know, the thing that's kind of fun about the movie, there's these little community of people, and there are these kind of social, intellectual elites that are concentrated on these very specific scientific problems. Sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. As Christians, I think we should be going to that same depth, theologically, that we should be in pursuit together. You know, I, I may be kind of clumsy in the lab, and I need you guys to come along and help me with the practical aspect. I, I'm thinking of the, you know, they all had their gifts. And I think that's true in the conversation and the fellowship that we have. That what the the community of pursuing this final truth, it should resonate with the same sort of kind of of love of other people that are in a common pursuit of a final truth that is the most interesting conversation in the world
3: yeah <laughs> um because we could talk about we could just keep talking about this for like this con- <laughs> yes. that's what's great about this conversation it's like it literally i mean literally doesn't end ever i don't yeah. think i mean yeah. unless isaac of syria is right and we're just all reduced to sort of silence and contemplate it's an awestruck you know mm-hmm. sort of but surely there'll be some sort of communication but yeah. um yeah this is like this is the infinite saint of nisa calls it you know the epic it's the sort of infinite spreading forth and spreading out into the infinite god you know it's, it's crazy yeah or we can just kill each other with nukes it's up to you it's up to you it's up to the listener um, all right yeah, i love you guys appreciate you y'all too. this Let's has been great yeah can't Let wait to do the next one all right see y'all good night right. guys
0: forgingplowshares.org